Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. While I was preparing today, I made a desk tour for you, if you're interested in checking that out. I talk a bit about Lovecraft, our upcoming game that we're going to play for Arkham Horror, and uh, just some random facts about me. So we are redoing Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath now because, one, I realized that we never finished it. Um, and that's largely because I was very inexperienced as a reader back then. And something like Lovecraft, as I'm sure you can hear in the words he chooses, is um, quite difficult sometimes. <laughs> so here we are. Back again, blast from the past, from 2018, Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath. Now, I've also created a cosmic space atmosphere, which I will add to another version of this same episode. And I'll be uploading the cosmic atmosphere as an atmosphere anyway, um, likely on Sunday, so stay tuned for that. And now, why don't you sit back, lay back, close your eyes, and let me read you to sleep. And now, on with our story time. Three times, Randolph Carter dreamed of the marvelous city and three times was he snatched away, while still he paused on the high terrace above it. All golden and lovely, it blazed in the sunset, with walls, temples, colonnades, and arched bridges of veined marble, silver-basined fountains of prismatic spray in broad squares, and perfumed gardens, and wide streets, marching between delicate trees and blossom-laden urns and ivory statues in gleaming rows, while on steep northward slopes climbed tiers of red roofs and old peak gables harboring little lanes of grassy cobbles. It was a fever of the gods, a fanfare of supernal trumpets, and a clash of immortal symbols. Mystery hung about it as clouds about a fabulous, unvisited mountain. And, as Carter stood breathless and expectant on that balustrated parapet, there swept up to him the poignancy and the suspense of almost vanished memory. The pain of lost things, and the maddening need to place again, but once had an awesome, momentous place. He knew that for him its meaning must once have been supreme, though in what cycle or incarnation he had known it, or whether in dream or in waking, he could not tell. Vaguely, it called up glimpses of a far, forgotten first youth when wonder and pleasure lay in all the mystery of days, and dawn and dusk alike strode forth, prophetic, to 
the eager sound of lutes and song. Unclosing fairy gates toward further and surprising marvels. But each night as he stood on that high marble terrace, with the curious urns and carven rails, and looked off over that hushed sunset city of beauty and unearthly eminence, he felt the bondage of dreams, tyrannous gods. For in no wise could he leave that lofty spot, or descend the wide memorial flights flung endlessly down to where those streets of elder witchery lay outspread and beckoning. When, for the third time, he awakened with those flights still undescended, and those hushed sunset streets still untraversed, he prayed long and earnestly to the hidden gods of dream, that brood capricious above the clouds on unknown Kadath, in the cold waste where no man treads, but the gods made no answer and showed no relenting nor did they give any favoring sign when he prayed to them in dream and invoked them sacrificially through the bearded priest, Nasht and Kamantha, whose cavern temple with its pillar of flame lies not far from the gates of the waking world. It seemed, however, that his prayers must have been adversely heard for after even the first of them, he ceased wholly to behold the marvelous city. As if his three glimpses from afar had been mere accidents or oversights, and against some hidden plan or wish of the gods, at length, sick and longing for those glittering sunset streets and cryptical hill lanes among ancient tiled roofs, nor able, sleeping or waking, to drive them from his mind. Carter resolved to go with bold entreaty, whither no man had gone before, and dare the icy deserts through the dark to where unknown Kadath, veiled in cloud and crowned with unimagined stars, holds secret and nocturnal the onyx castle of the Great Ones. In light slumber, he descended the seventy steps to the cavern of flame and talked of this design to the bearded priests, Nasht and Kamantha. Then the priests shook their pshent-bearing heads and vowed it would be the death of his soul. They pointed out that the Great Ones had shown already their wish, and that it is not agreeable to them to be harassed by insistent pleas. They reminded him, too, that not only had no man ever been to unknown Kadath, but no man had ever suspected in what part of space it might lie, whether it be in the dreamlands around our world, and those surrounding some unguessed companion, Fumaldha or Aldebaran. If in our dreamland it might conceivably be reached, 
but only three fully human souls since time began had ever crossed and recrossed the black, impious gulfs to other dreamlands. And of that three, two had come back quite mad. There were, in such voyages, incalculable local dangers, as well as that shocking final peril, which gibbers unmentionably outside the ordered universe, where no dreams reach. That last amorphous blight of nethermost confusion, which blasphemes and bubbles at the center of all infinity, the boundless demon sultan Azathoth, whose name no lips dare speak aloud, and who gnaws hungrily in inconceivable, unlighted chambers beyond time, amidst the muffled, maddening beating of vile drums, and the thin, monotonous whine of accursed flutes, to which detestable pounding and piping dance slowly, awkwardly, and absurdly, by gigantic ultimate gods, the blind, voiceless, tenebrous, mindless other gods, whose soul and messenger is the crawling chaos, Yar Lothotep. Of these things was Carter warned by the priests, Nasht and Kamantha, in the cavern of flame. But still he resolved to find the gods on unknown Kadath in the cold waste, wherever that might be, and to win from them the sight and remembrance and shelter of the marvelous sunset city. He knew that his journey would be strange and long, and that the great ones would be against it. But being old in the land of dream, he counted on many useful memories and devices to aid him. So, asking a farewell blessing of the priests, and thinking shrewdly on his course, he boldly descended the seven hundred steps to the gate of deeper slumber, and set out through the enchanted wood. In the tunnels of that twisted wood, whose low, prodigious oaks twine groping boughs and shine dim with the phosphorescence of strange fungi, dwell the furtive and secretive Zugs, who know many obscure secrets of the dream world and a few of the waking world, since the wood at two places touches the lands of men, though it would be disastrous to say where. Certain unexplained rumors, events, and banishments occur among men, where the Zugs have access, and it is well that they cannot travel far outside the world of dream. But over the nearer parts of the dream world they pass freely, flitting small and brown, and unseen, and bearing back piquant tales to beguile the hours around their hearth in the forest they love. Most of them live in burrows, but some inhabit the trunks of the great trees. 
And although they live mostly on fungi, it is muttered that they have also a slight taste for meat, either physical or spiritual. For certainly, many dreamers have entered that wood who have never come out. Carter, however, had no fear, for he was an old dreamer that had learnt their fluttering language and made a treaty with them, having found through their help the splendid city of Selephias in Uthnargai, beyond the Tenarian hills, where reigns half the year the great King Huranes, a man he had known by another name in life. Huranes was the one soul who had been to the star gulfs and returned free from madness. Threading now the low phosphorescent aisles between those gigantic trunks, Carter made fluttering sounds in the manner of the zoogs and listened now and then for responses. He remembered one particular village of the creatures near the center of the wood, where a circle of great mossy stones in what was once a clearing tells of older and more terrible dwellers long forgotten, and toward the spot he hastened. He traced his way by the grotesque fungi, which always seemed better nourished as one approaches the dread circle where elder beings danced and sacrificed. Finally, the greater light of those thicker fungi revealed a sinister green and gray vastness pushing up through the roof of the forest and out of sight. This was the nearest of the great ring of stones, and Carter knew he was close to the zoo village. Renewing his fluttering sound, he waited patiently, and was at length rewarded by an impression of many eyes watching him. It was the Zooks, for one sees their weird eyes long before one can discern their small, slippery, brown outlines. Out they swarmed, from a hidden burrow and honeycombed tree, till the whole dim litten region was alive with them. Some of the wilder ones brushed Carter unpleasantly, and one even nipped loathsomely at his ear. But these lawless spirits were soon restrained by their elders, the Council of Sages, recognizing the visitor, offered a gourd of fermented sap from a haunted tree, unlike the others, which had grown from a seed dropped down by someone on the moon and as Carter drank it ceremoniously, a very strange colloquy began. The Zoogs did not, unfortunately, know where the path of Karath lies, nor could they even say whether the cold waste is in our dream world or in another. Rumors of the Great Ones came equally from all points, and one might say, that they were likelier to be seen on high mountain peaks than in valleys, since on such peaks they dance reminiscently when the moon is above and the clouds beneath. 
Then one very ancient Zug recalled a thing, unheard of by the others, and said that in Ulthar, beyond the river sky, there still lingered the last copy of those inconceivably old panoptic manuscripts, made by waking men in forgotten boreal kingdoms and born into the land of dreams, when the hairy cannibal, Nopke, overcame many templed Ulitho, and slew all the heroes of the land of Lomar. Those manuscripts, he said, told much of the gods, and besides, in Ulthar, there were men who had seen the signs of the gods, and even one old priest who had scaled the great mountain to behold them dancing by moonlight. He had failed, his companion had succeeded and perished namelessly. So Randolph Carter thanked the Zooks, who fluttered amicably, and gave him another gourd of moon tree wine to take with him, and set out through the phosphorescent wood for the other side, where the rushing sky flows down from the slopes of Lyrian, the Hathag, and near and Ulthar dot the plain. Behind him, furtive and unseen, crept several of the curious Sugs, for they wished to learn what might befall him, and bear back the legend to their people. The vast oaks grew thicker as he pushed on beyond the village, and he looked sharply for a certain spot, where they would thin somewhat, standing quite dead, are dying among the unnaturally dense fungi and the rotting mold and mushy logs of their fallen brothers. There he would turn sharply aside, for at that spot a mighty slab of stone rests on the forest floor, and those who have dared approach it say that it bears an iron ring three feet wide. Remembering the archaic circle of great mossy rocks, and what it was possibly set up for. The Zooks do not pause near that expansive slab with its huge ring, for they realize that all which is forgotten need not necessarily be dead, and they would not like to see the slab rise slowly and deliberately. Carter detoured at the proper place and heard behind him the frightened fluttering of some of the more timid Zooks. He had known they would follow him, so he was not disturbed, for one grows accustomed to the anomalies of these prying creatures. It was twilight when he came to the edge of the wood, and the strengthening glow told him it was the twilight of morning. Over fertile plains rolling down to the sky, he saw the smoke of cottage chimneys, and on every hand were the hedges and ploughed fields and thatched roofs of a peaceful land. Once he stopped at a farmhouse well for a cup of water, and all the dogs barked affrightedly at the inconspicuous zoos that crept through the grass behind. At another house, where people were stirring, he asked questions about the gods, 
and whether they danced often upon the Rhine. But the farmer and his wife would only make the elder sign and tell him the way to Nier and Ulthar. At noon, he walked through the one broad high street of Nier, which he had once visited, and which marked his farthest formal travels in this direction. And soon afterward, he came to the great stone bridge across the sky, into whose central pier the masons had sealed a living human sacrifice when they built it thirteen hundred years before. Once on the other side, the frequent presence of cats, who all arched their backs at the trailing zoogs, revealed the near neighborhood of Ulthar. For in Ulthar, according to an ancient and significant law, no man may kill a cat. Very pleasant were the suburbs of Ulthar, with their little green cottages and neatly fenced farms. And still pleasanter was the quaint town itself, with its old peak roofs and overhanging upper stories and numberless chimney pots and narrow hill streets where one can see old cobbles whenever the graceful cats afford space enough. Carter, the cats being somewhat dispersed by the half-seen zoogs, picked his way directly to the modest temple of the Elder Ones, where the priests and old records were said to be, and, once within that venerable circular tower of ivied stone, which crowns Ulthar's highest hill, he sought out the patriarch, Otal, who had been up the forbidden peak in hot-laid cloth in the stony desert, and, come down alive again. Atal, seated on an ivory dais and festooned shrine at the top of the temple, was three fully centuries old, but still very keen of mind and memory. From him, Carter learned many things about the gods, but mainly that they are indeed only Earth's gods ruling feebly our own dreamland, and having no power or habitation elsewhere. They might, Atal said, heed a man's prayer, if in good humor. But one must not think of climbing to their onyx stronghold atop Gdoth in the cold waste. It was lucky that no man knew where Gdoth towers, for the fruits of ascending it would be very grave. Atal's companion, Barzai the Wise, had been drawn screaming into the sky for climbing merely the known peak of Hathegla. With unknown Kadath, if ever found, matters would be much worse. For although Earth's gods may sometimes be surpassed by a wise mortal, they are protected by the other gods from the outside whom it is better not to discuss. At least twice in the world's history, the other gods set their seal upon earth primal granite, once in antediluvian times, as guests from a drawing in those parts of the panoptic manuscripts, too ancient 
to be read. And once on Hothbank Claw, and Barzai the Wise tried to see Earth's gods dancing by moonlight. So, Matal said, it would be much better to let all gods alone except in tactful prayers. Carter, though disappointed by Atal's discouraging advice, and by the meager help to be found in the panoptic manuscripts and the seven cryptical books of Hassan, did not wholly despair. First, he questioned the old priest about that marvelous sunset city seen from the rail to terrace, thinking that perhaps he might find it without the god's aid, but Atal could tell him nothing. Probably, Atal said, the place belonged to his especial dream world, and not to the general land of vision that many know, and conceivably it might be on another planet. In that case, Earth's gods could not guide him if they would, but this was not likely, since the stopping of the dreams showed pretty clearly that it was something the Great Ones wished to hide from him. Then Carter did a wicked thing, offering his guileless host so many drafts of the moon wine which the Zoogs had given him, that the old man became irresponsibly talkative. Robbed of his reserve, poor Tall babbled freely of forbidden things, telling of a great image reported by travelers as carved on the solid rock of the mountain Nogronek on the Isle of Oriob in the Southern Sea, and hinting that it may be a likeness which Earth's gods once wrought of their own features in the days when they danced by moonlight on that mountain. And he hiccuped likewise, but the features of that image are very strange, so that one might easily recognize them, and that they are sure signs of the authentic race of the gods. Now, the use of all this in finding the gods became at once apparent to Carter. It is known that in disguise, the younger among the great ones often espouse the daughters of men, so that, around the borders of the cold waste, wherein stands Kadath, the pheasants must all bear their blood. This being so, the way to find that waste must be to see the stone face of Negronic and mark the features. Then, having noted them with care, to search for such features among living men, where they are plainest and thickest. There must the gods dwell nearest, and whatever stony waste lies back of the villages in that place must be that wherein stands Kadath. Much of the Great Ones might be learnt in such regions, and those with their blood might inherit little memories very useful to a seeker. They might not know their parentage, for the gods so dislike to be known among men that none can be found who has seen their faces wittingly, a thing which... Carter realized, even as he sought to scale Kadath. 
they would have strange, lofty thoughts, misunderstood by their fellows, and would sing of far places and gardens, so unlike any known even in dreamland. The common folk would call them fools, and from all this one could perhaps learn old secrets of Kadoth, or gain hints of the marvelous Sunset City, which the gods held secret. And more, one might in certain cases seize some well-loved child of a god as a hostage, or even capture some young god himself, disguised and dwelling amongst men with a comely peasant maiden as his bride. Atal, however, did not know how to find Negronic on its Isle of Oriob, and recommended that Carter follow the singing sky under its bridges down to the southern sea, where no Burgess of Ulthar has ever been. But whence the merchants come in boats, with long caravans of mules and two-wheeled carts, there is a great city there, Gilath Lean, but in Ulthar its reputation is bad because of the black three-banked galleys that sail to it with rubies from no clearly named shore. The traders that come from these galleys to deal with the jewelers are human, or nearly so, but the rowers are never beheld, and it is not thought wholesome in Ulthar that merchants should trade with black ships from unknown places whose rowers cannot be exhibited. By the time he had given this information, Atal was very drowsy, and Carter laid him gently on a couch of inlaid ebony and gathered his long beard decorously on his chest. As he turned to go, he observed that no suppressed fluttering followed him, and he wondered why the Zooks had become so lax in their curious pursuit. Then he noticed all the sleek, complacent cats of Ulthar licking their chops with unusual gusto, and recalled the spitting and caterwauling he had faintly heard in lower parts of the temple, while absorbed in the old priest's conversation. He recalled, too, the evilly hungry way in which an especially impudent young Zug had regarded a small black kitten in the cobbled street outside. And because he loved nothing on earth more than small black kittens, he stooped and petted the sleek cats of Ulthar as they licked their chops and did not mourn because those inquisitive Zugs would escort him no farther. It was sunset now, so Carter stopped at an ancient inn on a steep little street overlooking the lower town, and as he went out on the balcony of his room and gazed down at the sea of red tiled roofs and cobbled ways and the pleasant fields beyond, all mellow and magical in the slanted light, he swore that Ulthar would be a very likely place to dwell in always not the memory of a greater sunset city ever goading one on toward unknown perils. Then twilight fell, and the pink walls of the plastered gables turned violet and mystic, and little yellow lights floated up one by one 
from old lattice windows. And sweet bells pealed in the temple tower above. And the first star winked softly above the meadows across the sky. With the night came song. And Carter nodded as the lutenists praise ancient days. From beyond the filigreed balconies and tessellated courts of simple Ulthar. There might have been sweetness, even, in the voices of Ulthar's many cats, but that they were mostly heavy and silent from strange feasting. Some of them stole off to those cryptical realms which are known only to cats, and which villagers say are on the moon's dark side, whither the cats leap from tall housetops. But one small black kitten crept upstairs and sprang in Carter's lap to purr and play and curled up near his feet when he lay down at last on the little couch whose pillows were stuffed with fragrant, drowsy herbs. In the morning, Carter joined a caravan of merchants bound for Dilathleen with the spun wool of Ulthar and the cabbages of Ulthar's busy farms. And for six days they rode with tinkling bells on the smooth road beside the sky, stopping some nights at the inns of little quaint fishing towns, and on other nights camping under the stars, while snatches of boatmen's songs came from the placid river. The country was very beautiful, with green hedges and groves, and picturesque, peaked cottages, and octagonal windmills. On the seventh day, a blur of smoke arose on the horizon ahead, and then the tall black towers of Dilathleen, which is built mostly of basalt. Dilathleen, with its thin, angular towers, looks in the distance like a bit of the giant's causeway, and its streets are dark and uninviting. There are many dismal sea taverns near the myriad wharves, and all the town is thronged with the strange seamen of every land on earth, and of which a few are said to be not on earth. Carter questioned the oddly robed men of that city about the peak of Nagranek and the Isle of Oriob, and found that they knew of it well. Ships came from Baharna on that island, one being due to return thither in only a month. Negronek is but two days' zebra ride from that port. But few had seen the stone face of the god, because it is on a very difficult side of Negronek, which overlooks only sheer crags and a valley of sinister lava. Once the gods were angered with men on that side and spoke of the matter, to the other gods. It was hard to get this information from the traders and sailors in Dilathleen sea taverns, because they mostly preferred to whisper of the black galleys. One of them was due in a week with rubies from its unknown shore, and the townsfolk dreaded to see it dock. The mouths of the men who came from it to trade were wide, and the way their turbans were humped up in two points above their foreheads was in especially bad taste. 
and the shoes were the shortest and strangest ever seen in the six kingdoms. But worst of all was the matter of the unseen rowers. Those three banks of oars moved too briskly and accurately and vigorously to be comfortable, and it was not right for a ship to stay in port for weeks while the merchants traded, yet to give no glimpse of its crew. It was not fair to the tavern keepers of Dilath Lane, or to the grocers and butchers, either, for not a scrap of provisions was ever sent aboard. The merchants took only gold and stout black slaves from Park across the river. That was all they ever took. Those unpleasantly featured merchants and their unseen rowers, never anything from the butchers and grocers, but only gold and the black men of Park, whom they bought by the pound. And the odors from those galleys which the south wind blew and from the wharves are not to be described. Only by constantly smoking strong fagweed could even the hardiest denizen of the old sea taverns bear them. Dilathleen would never have tolerated the black galleys had such rubies been obtainable elsewhere, but no mine in all earth's dreamland was known to produce their like. One of these things Dilathleen's cosmopolitan folk chiefly gossiped whilst Carter waited patiently for the ship from Baharna, which might bear him to the isle whereon Carmen Negronic towers lofty and barren. Meanwhile, he did not fail to seek through the haunts of far travelers for any tales they might have concerning Kadath in the cold waste, or the marvelous city of marble walls and silver fountains seen below terraces in the sunset. Of these things, however, he learned nothing, though he once thought that a certain old merchant looked strangely intelligent and the cold waste was spoken of. This man was reputed to trade with the horrible stone villages on the icy desert plateau of Lang, which no healthy folk visit, and whose evil fires are seen at night from afar. He was even rumored to have dealt with that high priest, not to be described, who wears a yellow silken mask over its face and dwells all alone in a prehistoric stone monastery. That such a person might well have nibbling traffic with such beings as may conceivably dwell in the cold waste was not to be doubted. The carter soon found that it was no use questioning him. Then the black galley slipped into the harbor past the basalt mole and the tall lighthouse, silent and alien, with a strange stench that the south wind drove into the town. Uneasiness rustled through the taverns along that waterfront, and after a while, the dark, wide-mouthed merchants with humped turbans and short feet clumped stealthily ashore to seek the bazaars of the jewelers. Carter observed them closely and disliked them more the longer he looked at them. Then he saw them drive the stout black men of Park up the gangplank, grunting and sweating, 
into that singular galley and wondered in what lands, or if in any lands at all, those pathetic creatures might be destined to serve. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams.